Good morning, everyone. This is Ruth Mitchell, editor of The Wholesaler Magazine, coming to you from Chicago, Illinois. And I'm here uh, celebrating The Wholesaler Magazine's 75th anniversary. As such, we're connecting with CEOs and industry leaders of companies that have also celebrated such milestones. We want to talk about how they've weathered the business landscape through changing times. Today, we're joined by Dr. Dom McNeely, Chairman and CEO of Chicago Tube and Iron Company, as well as Professor at Northwestern University's McCormick School of Engineering. Chicago Tube and Iron is a distributor and fabricator with engineering services that was founded in 1914 on Chicago's South Side. The company has posted 105 years of consecutive profitability, which has provided the capital for continued growth and job creation. Together with Olympic Steel, they have 34 locations throughout the United States and Mexico with 4.2 million square feet of processing facilities. Now, the company has been in the Wholesaler Magazine's top 100 distributor listing for many years. And I'm excited to jump into the conversation today about the 100 plus years of accomplishments, roadblocks, learning blocks, and reflective moments. Here to tell the story as only he can is Dr. Don McNeely. Don, welcome to Off the Cuff. Good morning, Ruth. And first, congratulations on hitting the milestone of 75 years, especially in the, the publishing industry. That's rarefied air. So congratulations to you. Well, thank you so much. And we're really excited too, Don, to, you know, have you be here. The, the company, Chicago Tube and Iron, man, founded in 1914. That is, that is an absolute accomplishment. You know, I want to kind of take it back down to the basics, Don. Can you talk to me about the company's core mission and values and how they've changed or evolved over the years? So mission and values really is the foundation upon which you build your enterprise. You know, if you're building a house, you start with that foundation, and the foundation is either strong or it's weak, and that has profound implications on uh, your survivability. Uh, I think mission and values, it's the rudder that guides the ship. You know, it tends to keep your organization at its true north. And I think the, the value it plays is in the evolution of your company or leadership. If you are faced with a decisional dilemma, uh, the proverbial fork in the road, if you will, simply refer back to your mission and values. And that should guide your decision and that subsequent journey. Uh, you know, it's almost Shakespearean, you know, in that to thine own self be true. Mm -hmm. At the end of any year or any quarter or any career, you know, uh, look in the mirror and make sure that you like what you're looking back at you. And I think that mission and values plays a role in that. Having said that, strategy changes over the years. You know, markets change, the environment changes, the economy changes. Uh, and I think strategy changes, but I think mission and values do not change. I think they're evergreen and sacrosanct. What's at the core? What's at the core of Chicago Tube and Iron's mission and value? So, you know, you're always going to have some of the generic stuff, and if it's generic, it doesn't mean it is without value. So what's important to us is teamwork and quality, of course, and employee development. You've heard me say in many articles and speeches that how the company after you're gone is more a reflection on your leadership than when you were there. So employee development is a core value for us, and we certainly want to be good corporate citizens in any of our communities. You know, at the end of the day, if you're not satisfying your customers, you're not going to be around long. And you want to capture that teamwork and quality and development and citizenship and satisfaction all under an environment of respect. 
And so while some of those sound like uh, apple pie and mom and Chevrolet, they are important. But what reigns above all of those core values is probably our top three, and that being integrity. I mean, you know, when I talked about liking what you see when you look in the mirror, that really is at the heart of integrity. And then I think accountability. You know, we've got to accept responsibility for our decisions, good or bad. But the one that trumps all above all else is if we can't get people home safely and in the same condition or better than they arrived in the morning, what good is anything else? So at our core is keeping people safe each and every day. So we start with safety and accountability and integrity. Well, those are great places to start, Don. And, uh, you know, a hundred plus years, it's done the company good. That's for sure. You know, we know that you have had 105 years of consecutive profitability, but I'm sure that that came with some challenges as well. Can you talk to me about what have been some of your company's largest roadblocks over the years and how they were handled or tackled or overcome? You know, that's an interesting question for somebody that's been around five or 10 years. But when you look at somebody that's been around as long as we have, you know, our roadblocks are almost parallel to the roadblocks of our nation. You know, we're pretty much battle tested. So remember, our history includes, you know, World War One and World War Two, and we supplied steel to those efforts. And then from there on to the roadblocks of Korea and Vietnam. And if I set kind of uh, the what we identify as wars aside, then there were 14 non-wars, which we euphemistically call police actions. But if I set all that, that vitriol about war aside, and, you know, we cannot provide a successful defense of the nation with, without our industry. We've also navigated nine recessions, the Great Depression of 29, the Great Industrial Recession of 2009, 9-11, and so many more. But I think we've also had to look at things beyond our control, and that is classic disruptive. And we always hear about disruptive technology. But it's not just technology, but what we've seen in the span of my career and the history of our company is alternative materials other than steel, other than metal. So that's kind of been a macroeconomic engineering challenge for us. So if you ask me the single largest roadblock in my 40-year career, you know, of course, there's Pearl Harbor, 1929. That was long before uh, or long in front of my career. But I think remarkably, given the timing of this conversation, Ruth, I think this current pandemic might be the biggest roadblock of my 40-plus year career, you know, because of the reaction to it, or a case could be made the overreaction to it, 40 million jobs were lost, most of them temporary, but not all of them, 110,000 companies that won't be back, you know, so there are certain skill challenges that are in front of us as roadblocks as we start to restart the economy. In the midst of this pandemic, we need to restart the economy and now add to that recipe unprecedented social unrest and unprecedented political acrimony. So I think um, those are some of the roadblocks that we've successfully navigated and that has been successfully navigated by my leadership predecessors dating decades and decades and decades earlier. But my current roadblock and what we're navigating right now is this pandemic. If we concentrate on... Um Talking about the pandemic, what do you think has been the most valuable lesson you've learned from this experience or any roadblock that you've maybe had within the last five to 10 years? What have you extrapolated from that and and used it as the learning curve? 
Well, one, I always wanted to spend my life in a relevant industry. And the fact that we have been deemed an essential employer, as has most of our industry, I think that really validates that we chose the right career in the right industry. You know, we're, we're providing materials for power generation and the Defense Department and for the hospital industry. Uh, so we, we have been navigating all this under the umbrella of finally a validation of what we do is relevant. In terms of the lessons learned, you know, in the evolution of any enterprise, if it's a successful enterprise, you're going to periodically encounter what I call these points of inflection. Those points of inflection, Ruth, are our industry's equivalent of that unanticipated, non-predictable black swan event. And it is in these periods of inflection where a company's future is in question. If it's not navigated properly by appropriate leadership, those companies don't survive nor the people with them. Think Enron, if you will. So in these points of inflection, you don't really rethink your mission or your values, but you absolutely need to rethink your strategy. And you better have, as we South Siders say, street cred with the collegial base, your your colleagues, your employees, to, to have confidence that you will guide them through this. So as you rethink that strategy, it's critically important for survivability. So in the lessons learned, you know, they say you'll encounter these points of inflection, three, perhaps no more than four in your career. So if you do the math, you're going to have those challenges about once a decade. And I think you would agree that there's nothing more frustrating than seeing someone placed in a leadership role only to have them not leave. I mean, my God, you know, leadership is the stewardship of others. How dare you fumble that responsibility? So thus, uh, the one thing that I've learned during these roadblocks is never underestimate the value of leadership. Not fake leadership, not feigned leadership, but true leadership. So you can't underestimate that. And the development of up-and-coming leadership cue in the organization, you've got to be working on that next cue in leadership. So I think my lesson learned is as much as I value and laud it leadership uh, now more than ever before. That's my lesson learned. Well, I do love that, Don. You're absolutely right. It's, you know, we can go through the toughest times as long as we have leadership there that's that's guiding us and taking us through it. With that being said, let's let's talk about that for a second. Um, what have been some of the toughest decisions that have been made at the company over the years? You know, when you spend as many years there as I have the company and our leadership, we kind of become one of the same. So I guess I'll start with an anecdotal example of a tough challenge, and that is hiring some relatives, but not all relatives. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, I come from a large family, as you know, seven brothers and sisters, and by extension, dozens of cousins and aunts and uncles. And whenever somebody's in between a job, you know, of course, they want to come and work for you until they find another job, and that's not a good optic. So those are tough things. You know, you could say treat your family as a family and your business as a business, and never the two shall meet. And that's a little naive. There's an old adage that says, the further your seats are from the field, the easier the game is. Yep. So easier said than done. Um, one other anecdotal story that was difficult for me, once upon a time, I was the best man at a colleague's wedding and then fired him upon his return from his honeymoon. Uh, he was wow. Yeah. He was an underperformer. I think he knew he was in trouble. But by inviting me to be his best man, he was going to accelerate the decision. That was his way of testing it. But in the end, uh, the organization's got to prevail over any individual. But in the end, I, I think I had two challenges. I think back to what kept me up at night. What kept me up at night is, you know, when you have the financial history and success that we've had, 
kind of got a game plan down that works. But there are two things that, that kept me awake and I did give organizational challenges. One was after 90 years on Chicago's South Side in this very rich in history back of the Arch neighborhood, uh, we needed to move out of the city. Uh, we felt that the city was becoming more service oriented. They had lost their embracement or affection for the industrial sector. I think a lot of our customers saw that before we did. So we started to look at the migration of our customers and fabricators out of the city, kind of moving in that west and north corridor. So after a while, you know, the writing was on the wall where we had to relocate. So we were worried about the potential disruption and how can we avoid that? I mean, we have the longest average tenure in the United States steel industry. Our average employee has been with us 12.8 years. Wow. So when you think one out of every two employees has been with you over a dozen years, and here we are picking up the company and moving it 31 miles away, 96% of our employees made the move with us. So we were able to avoid that. But we, we did agonize over abandoning the city in which we were raised, in which we were schooled, in which we loved. Probably the biggest, toughest challenge and decision we had to make is um, my partner uh, and I were together for 35 years, and he was part of the founding family back in 1914. So technically, he was the fourth generation, and he was um, he was seven years older than me. And I, I, I'm not sure how to frame this, so I'll just be very candid, uh, because of other investments and other things that we were involved in, uh, we were blessed to have financial success. So at a relative middle age, we had ourselves and our family covered, but we came to the epiphany that, you know, maybe our God gave us a talent to do more than just maximize our own net worth. Uh, and so what we started to do is to measure our success by how many others we can make successful. And I hate to be so graphic as a South Sider, but everybody gets off on something. And for shock value, I like to say my porn is job creation. Nothing excites me more than job creation. So we felt that we had uh, an opportunity, uh, if not an obligation, to create jobs. And so we kind of didn't take our money and run. We just continued to plow it back into the enterprise. And, you know, if somebody was successful when we were growing up, you wanted to find out why they were successful and how can we emulate them. And as we create jobs, we're kind of free market people. We'll lift the box. We don't want the government to come and help us lift the box of job creation. But all of a sudden, with these ridiculous regulations, they started to jump on the box and make it heavier and heavier. The government became the roadblock to us creating wealth and employment for others. And then you'll recall probably seven or eight years ago, this moniker called one percenters. So, you know, my partner comes to me and says, when did we become public enemy number one? Mm -hmm. This is with this denunciation of capitalism. So here's a guy that was fourth generation family ownership and he wanted out. So for me to buy him out, uh, it would have cost me over $100 million. And I lined it up with the bank. But the reality is we never had debt. If you have to service debt, in times when business is soft, now you have to lay off people to generate the cash flow to service the debt. And that wasn't acceptable to us. So uh, as a result of him wanting to exit and me not wanting to take on the debt, uh, probably the biggest toughest decision in our history was needing to merge the company in, uh, in 2011. And we merged uh, from a private company to a public company. And that was Olympic Steel. And they've been an outstanding partner. Uh, the result is we're now one of the top 10 in the nation. And one of the key metrics that I think uh, you'll appreciate is 
in the span of one guy's career, uh, we now do approximately every 19 minutes what we used to do in an entire year. Wow. So there's a, there's a lot of sleepless nights making that decision and then vetting the process of the right partner. And uh, happy to say, as tough as that was, we ended up with a, a great partner in Olympic Steel and we share their values and we share their mission. Well, those are definitely some serious, tough decisions to make. I mean, I can definitely understand um, the challenges that you went through to do that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at the flip side of this and say, let's look at the last five years, Don. In the last five years, what's the smallest change that has been made that's had the biggest impact? So that's interesting. So with my acquisitions hat, so what, what is the biggest delta between a decision you make and the impact? And, and that's a great question, by the way. And uh, I think this might be my most controversial response. So I'm, I'm going to ask your listeners to listen closely because it could be misinterpreted. But, you know, the industry is led by and large by boomers for many, many decades now. And we boomers grew up in an environment where you never say no to a customer. The customer's always right. And we want to strive to be all things to all people. And so what I have learned in the latter stages of my career is if I do some self-introspection, the reality is it's arrogant to think you're the right supplier for everybody. I think it's arrogant for anybody to take that position. I've observed many profitable $200 million companies held captive in a $250 million break-even company, meaning the $50 million worth of bad business you took trying to be all things to all people purged the entire profitability of the 200 million that came before. So some relationships tend to engage in a never-ending exploitative relationship and then call it a partnership when it's anything but. So the small change that we made, quite contrary to how we grew up, we did customer pruning. We did customer pruning. We came to the conclusion there's certain customers that we weren't healthy for them and they're not healthy for us. So we're much more surgical about who we wanted to partner with, uh, and we pursued relationships with customers we wanted. And they uh, weren't just customers that appreciated us, but they're customers that through their challenges make us a better company. You know, on the surface, you think what they want is unreasonable, but we either respond to that or we no longer exist. So there are people that appreciate the true partnership, but there are people that challenge us to do things we've never done before. So at the end, even though you might fight and quibble along the way, the end result is we both end up a, a better customer, a, a better company. And to do that, we had to go through this customer pruning. So, you know, having said that, we at Chicago Tube and Iron very much accept this obligation to keep our customers competitive with pricing in the market. And that's an obligation we accept. However, um, there's some others that you're never going to please, and those are the kind that zap the organization's focus and energy. And I think that's focus and energy that should be directed towards the true customer partners. So that customer pruning and, and finally accepting that we're not the right supplier for everybody, I think it's had profound uh, implications on the success of our company. Well, I, you know, Don, I, I like that response. It is a truthful response. And at the end of the day, it's all about keeping your company healthy as well as helping your customers grow along the way too. And, and what's the best formula to do that? So no, I can I completely understand where you're coming from. Let me ask you this. I did start this conversation by saying that the Wholesaler Magazine is celebrating its 75th anniversary this year. How has the Wholesaler Magazine helped Chicago Tube and Iron be successful? So Ruth, I know you well. I've heard you speak from the podium and I've read your writing. So 
uh, I want to tease you a little bit and say, when you say, how have we helped you, you're presuming you have. So I just, I say that tongue in cheek, and I kid you because you have indeed, you've got a great publication. You know, I think, sitting back, I think any, I speak for different trade associations in different industries, and one commonality that I do see is successful industries need a respective medium of communication. How do we communicate with one another? Typically, it's got to be through some medium, some publication. And I think the wholesaler has positioned itself as the industry organ. You guys are the, the accepted industry organ of communication. And frankly, a respected one of that. And I don't mean to be blowing smoke, but it's universally respected. And uh, if you allow me to drill down a little bit, why is that? You might ask as a follow-up question. And so what I feel your value is to your subscribers, and thus that value would be your differentiator, is what do you do different than other publications that I see? Uh, one is the stability of ownership. You know, you're not being sold every five years. You know, people aren't buying it, running up the value and spinning it. So I think the stability of your ownership and also the stability of the editorial staff. You know, your your editors are not using it as a career stepping stone. So we don't have to revisit the learning curve over and over again. So when people in our industry are talking to people in your publication, it, it, it kind of evolves from a business relationship to a friendship. But there's a common understanding. Uh, the second thing is your staff reporters. They're genuinely interested in learning the industry. They're genuinely interested in the real story. They're genuinely embracing the celebration of milestones as opposed to this all too popular gotcha journalism. So I think that's why your calls, and especially yours, get answered quickly, get return calls. That's not the case with other publications. You know, also, just to elaborate a minute, many of your advertisers have been there for years. As I page through, mm-hmm. even though they might be selling something or offering something that I don't necessarily uh, need, I see the same names over and over again. So a lot of those advertisers have been there for years, thus clearly they find some value. If I get personal for a minute, I read every one of your columnists. I love every one of your columnists and I find value in How do I determine if I find value? Well, it's the frequency in which I'm cutting out one of those columns, putting a margin note on, and then circulating it through a routing slip to our company or to my students at the university. So I think uh, your columnists are invaluable. So that's how you brought value to our industry and our company and to myself as a leader. Uh, Well, thank you for that, Don. We do appreciate it. And and. There is one columnist that we've had in there for many years. I don't know if you've heard of him, but, you know, he's one I usually flip to uh, in the very beginning, and that's Dr. Donald McNeely. And thank you for having your partnership with us in the magazine as well. It's what we love to give our readers is the information and the perspective to take a, a, a bigger look here. I'm going to, I have two more questions for you, Don, and I call it my dinner party questions. They're a little bit off off the wall here, but the first one is, you know, what one word do you want your customers or your employees or your channel partners to have in mind when they think of your company? So, you know, I, not a noun. I'd like it to be a, an adjective, you know, and, uh, you know, so what comes to mind? I think I would like people to know we're honest and I guess dependable would be appropriate and, and ethical, maybe at the top of all that. So if I had to think, let me think, if there was one word that maybe captures all that under an umbrella, I guess I would say fair. I would hope that people would see us in our century plus 
your journey as an enterprise that's fair. And I think if you're not fair and perceived as being fair, you certainly don't celebrate the milestones we have. So I, I guess my answer to that over dinner would be uh, fair. I think that what describes as fair to our employees, our, our valued vendors and suppliers, and of course our customers, uh, who without, we just don't exist. So I, I, I'm going to go, Alex, with the word fair. <laughs> well, I do like that answer because, you know, it's like you said, Don, it encompasses so much and it really goes down to um, partnerships and connectability. Um, all right. I'm going to leave you with my one last question, last dinner party question. What award do you want to see on the company's wall? Interesting. So would that be an existing award I'm aware of or an award that I wish existed? And if it was the latter, you know, there's a seminal work by an author, Ayn Rand, called Atlas Shrugged. Uh-huh. And it really talked about the principles of, of the free market. And I credit that first and foremost with our success. And uh, not only did it lead to the 105 years of, of profitability, which you so generously pointed out, but, you know, the, the subset to that is that money allowed us to create even more employment. Mm-hmm. So I, I think if there was that type of free market Atlas Shrugged Award, you know, I'd like that on my wall. Uh, what if there was a relevancy award? I, I talked about the importance of relevancy earlier, you know. How relevant were we to our industry? I mean, I think we were a player. How relevant were we to our community and to our nation? And so I think it's an award that I would be proud to have on our wall. And speaking to my earlier answer, there was an integrity award. I mean, I'm pretty proud that we have 100 plus years absent any ethical lapses, you know, any headline grabbing scandal. I mean, that that doesn't happen by accident. You have to create that right environment. But I guess, to be perfectly honest, putting all the financial stuff aside, if you limited me to only one award, believe it or not, it would be a safety award, a safety award, that we had no fatalities, that we got everyone home every day in the same or better condition than when they arrived. So at the end of the day, if only one thing can hang on that award, uh, on that wall in the form of an award, I want it to be a safe working environment, a safety award. The irony of the whole thing, Don, is when we started out this conversation, we started talking, you started to talk about how safety is the of the utmost importance and we're ending it on that note too, which just goes back to how Chicago Tube and Iron is a wonderful industry and channel partner and how at the end of the day, it is about helping others be safe and grow um, along the way. And that is exactly what has brought your company to 100 plus years of of servicing the industry and the nation. And thank you for allowing us to be a part of that along the way and celebrating the Wholesaler Magazine's 75th anniversary. So with that, Dr. Don McNeely, I'm going to say thank you for joining us today and for your time. And we look forward to seeing you down the road here once things open up and, uh, and get back to it. So thank you very much. Thank you, Ruth.